True Crime and Academia. As always, I am your host, Mary DePippi. As of this day, March 28th, that I am recording, it is my birthday. Yeah, I, I'm still figuring out how I feel about this birthday. I am turning the big three zero. My 20s are dead. They are gone. It's a little weird. As always, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I hope it gets better for you. I mean, I hope you're having a better week than Chris Rock. How could I be a true crime podcaster if I didn't discuss the assault we all witnessed on Sunday night, which was Will Smith smacking the shit out of Chris Rock? Now, do I understand where Will Smith is coming from emotionally? Absolutely. His wife was disrespected. His partner was disrespected. I get that. I totally get that. And I totally understand wanting to stick up for your partner, your person, your husband, your wife, whatever you call them. I get that. But I'm also not trying to be like the holier than thou person who's like, violence is never the answer. I think violence should be avoided at all costs. You know, you, sh you should do your best and not want to commit violence, is what I'm saying. But I do understand that there are times where we are, we are driven to that. Now, personally, I think that situation could have ended as a conversation. It's been like, Will Smith, Chris Rock, like, yo, hey, you realize my wife isn't choosing this haircut on purpose. She's choosing it because of an autoimmune disease that she has that's known as alopecia. That could have been a conversation that was had. Now, do we expect Chris Rock to respect that as a comedian? I don't know. I don't, you know, I feel like the job of a comedian has become where some people want to hold them to a higher standard than others. And I don't, I just, I don't think that's fair. You know, Will could have handled this differently. I think Jada Pickett even tweeted, like, that's how we do, or something like that after the fact. I don't respect the idea that violence should be the first thought. Again, like I said, I'm not trying to be, like, a holier-than-thou, but, like, what the fuck, man? There's so much violence going on in our world right now. We could use a little less of it. Again, I just think Will Smith should have used a little more restraint as far as his physical actions were concerned. And, you know, maybe should have just talked it out. Anyway, I have a really good case for you. I'm very excited to talk about this. This is something that I've had on my list for quite a while now. And I'm very excited to get into this case with you all. So, without further ado, let's get into it. On the morning of June 30th, 2011, police arrived at the apartment of Lauren Giddings. Inside, her purse, credit cards, and keys were all inside, and her car was parked outside. But there was no sign of Lauren. 
Police then searched the surrounding areas and were drawn to a stench coming from one of the dumpsters. Inside, they found a female torso wrapped in plastic. The torso belonged to Lauren Gidding. Lauren Gidding was born on April 18, 1984 in Tacoma Park, Maryland to parents Karen and William Giddings. She was the first person in her family to attend college, something her father was very proud of. Lauren had recently graduated from Mercer University in Georgia and was studying for the Georgia bar exam. So when friends and family didn't hear back from Lauren immediately, they just assumed that she was busy studying. But how long could one be studying for without at least sending a text like, hey, you know, I'm okay, I'm just studying, before it becomes suspicious? Lauren's sister, Caitlin, knew that it wasn't like Lauren to not respond after a few days of no responses. And it had been determined, eventually, that Lauren's phone had been turned off because it would go straight to voicemail. Caitlin decided to call the police to do a welfare check. When police arrived at Lauren's apartment, they noted that from the outside, there had been no signs of a break-in. So they just assumed that everything was fine and then they left. They didn't even knock or try to go in. (laughs) They literally looked at her front door and decided that everything was fine because there were no signs of a break-in. Honestly, I hope to God that those officers got fired because that is not how you perform a welfare check. In a welfare check, for those of you who don't know, you have to actually, like, speak to the person (laughs) and, like, confirm that they're okay before you can just be like, oh, yeah, they're fine. But no, that's not what they did in this situation. Because had they gone in, they would have noticed that something was wrong and could have investigated sooner. But of course, they left without doing a thorough check. Lauren's friends were also worried and decided that on the late night of the 29th, early of June 30th, that they would go into her apartment using a spare key that they knew that Lauren had kept hidden outside of her door. When they entered the apartment, they found Lauren's purse and her keys still inside, which made sense because her car was still parked at the apartment complex but there was no sign of lauren and as we all know if a person's purse keys and like car are all present but the person is nowhere to be found the likelihood of that person being missing or dead significantly increases caitlin lauren's sister called their uncle who had worked as a police officer in dc and told them what they had found in lauren's apartment Gravely, he told them they needed to leave the apartment without touching anything and shut the door behind them and called the police. When police arrived, they noticed the same thing that her friends had. Nothing was out of place and there was no signs of forced entry. Thankfully, they decided to do a luminol test on the apartment. At first, the tests in the main rooms showed no sign of blood. That is, until they reached the bathroom. Inside of the bathroom, so much had lit up that it looked like there had been a massacre in there. Given the amount of blood found, they immediately started treating Lauren's disappearance as a homicide, which truly, as you've heard me say on this podcast before, I think all missing persons should be treated as homicides until they can be accurately ruled out, you know? But obviously that is not the case, no matter how much I wish it was. I am happy, however, that they did do that luminal test immediately, Granted that they so royally fucked up on their welfare check, you know? 
Police then searched the surrounding area and interviewed other tenants to see if anyone saw or heard anything odd happening outside of Lauren's apartment. Officers were drawn to the dumpsters outside because of a strong, foul smell coming from them. Not long after they started their search did they find a female torso wrapped in plastic. That day, in particular, the garbage men had been late. Had they been on time, Lauren's torso most likely wouldn't have been found. And if you guys remember the Robin Benedict case that I covered early in season one, then we know how pretty much impossible it is to locate someone's body once it's been taken to a landfill. While the police were searching around the area, one of Lauren's neighbors was giving an interview to a local news station. His name was Stephen McDaniel, and he claimed to live right next door to Lauren. This interview made him the prime suspect, which we will talk about in a second, but let's get into Stephen McDaniel. Stephen McDaniel was born in the year 1989. I don't know a date for sure. I have tried to find it, but the year is all I have ever been able to find. So he was born in 1989 to parents Glenda and Mark McDaniel in Lillaburn, Georgia. Both Stephen's parents worked a lot to keep up with child and household expenses. This left little time for Stephen growing up. However, there are no specific incidences or any sort of reports of any sort of child abuse was being committed. Now, it was said that in high school, Stephen would tend to bully girls and had actually written a blog post containing violence against women. On his law school application, he described himself as a level-headed, down-to-earth dreamer and thinker who was highly competitive. His fellow classmates, however, called him intelligent, quirky, a misfit, yet reliable and hardworking, but pretty creepy. There was also this running joke amongst his classmates saying that Stephen could be dangerous, and Lauren herself even joked that if he was dangerous, she would be safe because she was always nice to him despite her having rejected him politely quite a few times when he asked her out because, you know, she had a boyfriend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, Look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Back to Stephen McDaniel's interview. In the beginning of the interview, 
he comes off as a person who might be concerned about Lauren. Multiple times he says that, you know, they have no idea where she is, but that he was concerned about her well-being. And he also describes Lauren as being nice as can be and personable. But when he is notified that police have located a torso in the dumpster, his demeanor completely changes. At first, it appears that he's just overly upset and thinks that this torso belongs to his neighbor. But as he continues the interview, after what looks like to be like a little mental breakdown, his behavior seems odd. And that's why police see him as their prime suspect. Now, I'm the first person who will tell you that we should not be judging someone based off of their reactions, especially when it comes to grief. Because everyone has their own way of interpreting grief, and I get that. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to explain or to show your grief. It just, it is what it is, and you don't know what, how it's going to be until it hits you. And so I get that. But I have seen videos, and I have linked those in below in the description as well, of psychologists and other mental health experts who have studied this interview footage. And they've all pretty much concluded that his behavior was not at all normal. Specifically, Dr. Grande says that at times it looks like he's just repeating reactions that he's seen others do time and time again, and that his are ingenuous. Now, Stephen also plays the would-be hero card in saying that had he known sooner, again, in the interview he says this, had he known sooner that Lauren felt unsafe in her apartment because, and this was because they found an email that they had recovered from her laptop to her boyfriend saying that she had felt that someone was going through her apartment when she wasn't there. Because of this, he says that he would have given her a handgun if he would have known how scared she was. Now, police were able to obtain a search warrant for Stephen's apartment. And for whatever reason, Stephen decided that he just needed to be there. They noted that Stephen had scratches on his face and stomach, but... He claimed that those were self-inflicted in his sleep. He was also sweating profusely and drank around 10 water bottles during the search. Which kind of makes sense because the evidence they found in his apartment was not as easily explained and kind of damning. Police found bloodstained packaging on an axe that was presumed to be the weapon to dismember Lauren's body. Two memory sticks or USBs one containing photos of Lauren and the other one containing images of child sex abuse and a master key to the apartment building. Meaning, so for those of you who don't understand what a master key is, he could just get in to anyone's apartment that he wanted to in that building because this one key fits every single door. Very terrifying, right? They also found swords and handguns that Stephen claimed that he had stolen from his neighbors. Which, why are you talking? But the most damning piece of evidence was a pair of Lauren's underwear that contained both Lauren's and Stephen's DNA. They had also found condoms, which they thought was odd because during the search, Stephen had told them that he was a virgin and was saving himself for marriage. I don't know. I feel like, the, again, I just feel like the whole, them finding condoms was just like a non- piece of evidence. If anything, I feel like they just wanted to put that in there just to add to the sex appeal, I guess, because we all know sex sells, right? 
So, of course, you know, if you add a bit about condoms, people are going to be more likely interested in hearing the story, especially when it involves someone who claims that they are a virgin and planning on saving themselves till marriage. So, but other than that, like I said, it really, it, it has no relevance. Anyway, for someone who is studying law, though, I have to say, it boggles my mind how he completely just forgot rule number one. That you never fucking speak to the police without a lawyer present. Because I feel like we have been taught in certain crime shows that, like, getting a lawyer means that you're guilty of something. But no, it just means that you're smart. It means that you just want someone who understands the law better than you to be present and to help you understand your rights better as you're being questioned by people who clearly have one motive and one motive only, which is to find out the truth. And I'm not saying that that motive is wrong or but it just it gets tainted and again Stephen mcdaniel is studying to be a goddamn lawyer how does he not know this how does he not know this because i can't understand for the life of me why i mean he admitted to burglary i don't understand that because i mean again i mean he's a law student so why are you admitting to a crime i'm pretty sure in law school they teach you that you should not do that because again our justice system is you're innocent until proven guilty. So you can't be given the opportunity of being innocent if you already admit to something, right? Just, I don't get it. It wasn't long before police searched his computer and found some extremely disturbing searches dating back a few months. Stephen's searches included nude Lauren Gidding, molest sleeping girl, choked how long wake up, along with a lot of violent pornography and Lauren's social media pages. Four hours before Lauren's torso was found, Stephen had actually searched how to delete browser history, which you can't delete anything from the internet. So, yeah. Police took Stephen into custody and arrested him on charges of burglary. With Stephen gone, the officers continued to search the building and found a hacksaw and plastic sheet covered in Lauren's blood in a locked closet in the building's laundry room. Police also stumbled upon a video, which has to be, I think, the most damning evidence of all against him. In the video, Stephen had attached a camera to a six-foot pole and then used it to spy on Lauren from her window while she was sleeping. Now, we all know what I say about stalking and peeping. It always escalates. It never just stays where it is. And I really do. I think it is the gateway crime for many would-be murderers. I mean, how many times do we see these different murderers and their early beginnings? And a lot of them started just this way with peeping and stalking their victims. And I guess to some extent, it kind of makes sense that that's what they would do. But at the same time, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's creepy, obviously. Anyway, Stephen was interviewed by detectives, but he continued to deny everything. It wouldn't be until three years later, yes, I said that, three years later, that Stephen would finally confess to the murder of Lauren Giddings. On April 21st, 2014, Stephen was put on trial and gave his account of what happened the night of Lauren's murder. Stephen claimed that at 4.30 a.m. on June 26, 2011, he went into Lauren's room using the master key. He was wearing all black, including a mask and gloves. He stood at the far end of her bedroom and watched her sleep for a while until she woke up. 
Now, this is a direct quote from Stephen. He said, she saw me and said very calmly, get the fuck out. I leapt across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed and onto the floor. And in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and lower body under the bed, preventing her from getting away or being able to kick me. He went on to say that during the struggle, Lauren was able to remove the mask from his face, to which she screamed, Stephen, please stop. But instead, Stephen tightened his grip around Lauren's neck and choked her for 15 minutes before Lauren died. So, yeah, guys, the movies are wrong. It does not take, like, five seconds or even 15 seconds for that matter to choke someone and kill them. No, it takes a lot longer and a lot more force and effort to do that so as as we can see and sadly like you know lauren had to be like facing him that entire time i mean for those 15 minutes she struggled and had to look at him in the face i mean how horrible is that Ugh, poor lauren steven dragged lauren's body into her bathroom and left her in the tub he then locked the door to her apartment and returned to his own to which she most likely was just watching porn the following night, Stephen returned to Lauren's apartment with the hacksaw and plastic sheath in order to dismember Lauren's body. He said, I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several trash bags separately, and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster. He then disposed of her torso two days before it was found. Stephen adamantly denied raping Lauren at his trial, and forensics proved that for once, he was telling the truth as there were no signs of sexual assault. Thank God. It was also revealed how Stephen was able to carry on after the murder, including joining a search for Lauren. He claims to have been in a dreamlike state and at one point even believed that Lauren could still be alive. Now, if there was any question as to the state of Stephen's mental health, I think it's safe to say that he probably has a mental disorder of sorts. And it also seems like he he's dissociating a lot like it's you know like the fact that he was able to carry on and whatnot and thinking that she's alive it just seems like he had dissociated so much that he was able to believe that which is i don't know how you do that but the brain is a very weird thing so weird and complicated so i guess i'm not too surprised that it would try and do that to I guess in some ways protect him, even though he doesn't deserve to be protected, but you can't tell your own brain that. But anyway, he said that he had grieved for Lauren and stated that he had become upset and anxious when learning that Lauren would be moving out of the building soon. By all accounts, this seems to actually be the catalyst that led Stephen to escalate to murder because Lauren moving destroyed the fantasies that he had been building up in his head for months and months and months about Lauren. Thankfully, Stephen was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, which was at the request of Lauren's family, because they didn't want him to get the death penalty, which, wow, that's very big of them to basically do that for him. Now, he also has the opportunity of parole in 2041, but the DA feels that Stephen will remain behind bars for the rest of his life. In 2019, however, yeah, just a couple of years ago, Stephen had attempted to make an appeal, but thankfully he was denied. So yes, he is still behind bars. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate you all for your support. 
please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, do all of the things. It helps us so that we can give you more of this awesome content. I hope you all stay safe out there, stay healthy, do all the things you need to do because I love you. And thank you for joining me on this very special season two episode. And with that, I will see you guys later. True Crime and Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, Jaron Usta, Marketing Director, and our interns, Nicola Grullo and Kimberly Dallas. Don't forget to follow us on social media at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Instagram and TikTok, Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter, and search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. You can also find True Crime in Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime in Academia. To support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a patron today to unlock exclusive content. As always, we appreciate your support and thank you for listening.